Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we review the new Dwayne Johnson action vehicle Rampage and Sean Baker's last year's uh, Oscar snub, potentially, film uh, The Florida Project. But before we get to that, got to knock out some news first. The first thing, Batgirl movie back on track with the writer for this year's Bumblebee. Andy, you found this story. What do you think about this? Well, it's kind of bittersweet. So I'm really happy that the Batgirl movie is back on the rails and that it's it's going to be made at the same time, you know, going from Joss Whedon to uh, this woman, uh, Christina Hodson, who is, was the writer of Bumblebee, which is going to be a standalone Transformers film coming out in December. That's kind of a letdown. Like you would hope it would be a better writer. Now, I mean, I may be jumping the gun. Bumblebee may be fantastic, but the Transformers series is is generally not known for its quality writing. It is weird um, that they are going with, and I'm sure it probably doesn't make a difference to Warner Brothers, but they're going with a female writer. That does kind of stand out to me because you think of Wonder Woman and the success with Patty Jenkins and something people had rumored when they talked about uh, Joss Whedon doing Batgirl was that they're not having more women work on it. So it's awfully convenient that they're going with a female writer, but Transformers is in a way similar to superhero films. So I guess it's not that weird to see... uh, Miss Hodson working on this. Uh, she form she formerly previously did Warner Brothers thriller Unforgettable, which starred Rosario Dawson and Katherine Heigl, which is a funny title because I don't remember that movie at all. <laughs> Completely, it is exactly as forgettable as its title would imply. It isn't as Katherine um, Heigl's career. <laughs> but it is a female-driven thing. Uh, she's a female writer. So I think there's certainly uh, some stock that they're putting in that and, and kind of the power that might bring to a Batgirl movie. Yeah, and the, one of the things that I was thinking of is that, you know, DC needs uh, some resuscitation. It needs something to uh, just get it out of the doldrums. And, you know, I think new characters, something like the Batgirl movie could really help that out. It is weird that, according to this article, which is out of The Hollywood Reporter, Whedon still stands on uh, the idea that he hadn't come up with a story for Batgirl. That's weird to me. The guy made Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's strange to me to think that somehow he couldn't come up with a good story for Batgirl. He made the Avengers. Like, come on. That's I, I, difficult for me to, to kind of bite into and believe. It makes me wonder if it really is just something going on in the back end. Um, but I guess we'll never really know. Yeah, uh, Batgirls is a great property. There's, I mean, like you said, they they have lots of comic books to rely on, lots of stories. Uh, you know, just off the top of my head, you know, you could get dark with the Killing Joke. You could do uh, Death of the Family, which is a more recent comic book arc. Um, most of her villains aren't are generally not well known. Her personal ones, but she also just kind of fights fights the general like rogues gallery. So there's definitely there. There's things to use. It's just. I mean, I don't know how difficult. I could come up with a story like next week, I feel. <laughs> Do you think there's any any more of a chance that it'll be a particularly dark story with this writer at the helm? Or do you think it'll kind of be lighthearted, playing it close to the chest safe? I, I think they definitely need to play it safe. I mean, DC's been criticized for being too dark and too broody. So I, I think that they definitely will try to keep it a little bit lighter and especially something like the killing joke is a particularly <laughs> dark story which I don't I don't think that they would want to take put that character through that right away that's something that might you know in in the fifth or sixth version of Batgirl that we get in in the next few decades maybe it is weird to think that this is the same company who's supposed to be making uh, a Joker standalone film right so clearly 
they're kicking around the idea and i can't blame them why wouldn't you the killing joke is kind of infamous for for being a story that people really like in the comic book world i'm sure it's something they'd like to bring um to film but i hope with what happened with justice league they're a little bit more wary of doing that uh i hope they look at justice league and go okay we should we should pump the brakes and figure out what exactly we're doing and i think at least i hope that's kind of what this is yeah it's like i said it's got a lot of potential and i'm definitely looking forward to it um just a little cautious with uh, the writer they've chosen the other well we have two other news stories i to say but the other comic related story we have involves marvel and the x-men and disney uh, concerning the new mutants, one of the stars of the film, uh, Charlie Heaton, as we know him from Stranger Things, Stranger Things, talked to EW last week and said that in the new mutants, quote, they're going full-fledged horror. That was the headline, all right? That that was kind of what they're, they're headlining this interview with, is that new mutants is going to be horror. We talked about that last week because it got pushed back. Um, what do you think about this? I mean, I've said this before. This movie is in real trouble. It's been pushed back a year and a half. They've done extensive reshoots. During the reshoots, they went back and added an entire new character to the film, which is really bizarre. So, I mean, like I said, I think it's in real trouble. I'm not real sure what to expect. Um, But it already looked like a horror movie, so I'm not sure by what they mean by going full horror as opposed to half horror. (laughs) <laughs> right. I, I think a lot of this is like sensationalism produced by somebody who was in the movie and stands to gain something if it does well. So, of course, he's going to talk highly of it. Um, I also think it's kind of, kind of trying to keep excitement alive or drum up more excitement for a movie that is, yeah, on the back burner. I was talking to somebody about it just this weekend, somebody who is a casual moviegoer but isn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't particularly listen to the show or anything, subscribe to Offscript on iTunes, who said, oh, yeah, I, I forgot about that movie. I think I saw a trailer for that a while ago. And I said, yeah, that's the problem. People are forgetting about it. People are just forgetting it was a thing. Like, a trailer came out for this. It happened. They got to make it now, right? And, and maybe... Maybe not. Maybe Disney can just keep it back forever and ne- never produce it or put it on Hulu or something. I don't know. But um, I like the idea of it being a horror film. It's exactly what he says in this in this interview. It's scarier than anything we've seen in that genre. And I like that. I like that they're doing something different. I think that's something Marvel needs. I think it's something X-Men kind of needs. Logan kind of did that. But how do you think this can affect um, how audiences perceive comic book films? I mean, it's great to go in, in a new direction, and it can definitely breathe life into X-Men, which has kind of gotten stagnant. I know they're doing uh, the Dark Phoenix Saga uh, starting in the fall as well, or actually it's been pushed to, to February. Um, you know, so it, it's a good direction, and it, it'll be nice to see something new, but at, at the same time, it, it's just so vague. Like, it, they just doesn't explain anything about what's really going on in the, in the movie. I do like that it features a lot of like young and up and coming actors and actresses. That certainly speaks towards breathing new life into uh, the franchise. I just it bums me out. Disney keeps pushing it back because I think this really does have potential to be this really cool thing. But with doing reshoots, jamming a whole new character in there, maybe they ran it by test audiences and it didn't do well. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's it's got a weird tone. Maybe it doesn't really work. So whatever they're holding it back for, it's probably a valid reason. But at some point, like I'd like to see this movie. I think it really has potential to do something cool. The other thing I'm worried about is all these actors I feel are going to be too old by the time it comes out. Like they're going to be significant because they're all very young. So they're going to be significant. Yeah. They're going to look significantly older once it actually hits theaters. 
Right. You got to watch out for that. I know Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones like just turned 19 and she's in this and she was probably like 16 or 17 when they filmed it at the rate they're going. So you got to watch out for that kind of thing uh, that can that can sneak up on you. So hopefully they do something with this. Hopefully it becomes something and doesn't just keep getting pushed back in in, uh, in memoriam, I guess. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it I, and I do want to see it, but it's just uh, man, it's in trouble. The other story we had before we move on to Rampage, this is a little little video game centric as our last stories were comic book centric, but hear me out. Uh, King of Kong star Billy Mitchell stripped of high scores, banned from competition. For those who don't know, King of Kong is a film about Donkey Kong. Uh, it's a documentary specifically. It's called King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. And it's about video game high scores that are submitted for older games, arcade games that were popular in like the 80s. Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Burger Time, games like that, right? It's about people back then who were known for getting these high scores and were in the Guinness World Book of Records and this organization called Twin Galaxies that tracked their scores and kind of kept them popular. And these people who were kids back then in the 80s and got these high scores are now grown up and still kind of perpetuating their their scores. Like that was their thing, right? That's That's what they were known for. So this is their lives now is like, keeping their scores high and and beating out whoever the new the new challengers are the new kids so you've got these old people specifically billy mitchell who were like in their 40s maybe 50s uh and still have the high score to pac-man and donkey kong and the movie the documentary specifically is about a guy named steve weeby who is a teacher out of idaho i think who kind of who challenge who buys a donkey kong machine and challenges billy mitchell to be the, the world record holder of Donkey Kong. It's very childish and it seems silly, but if you haven't seen it, it's actually a really fascinating documentary. It's really interesting to, to, to kind of learn about and see, see into this world of old video game scores and why it matters to old guys who have kind of <laughs> slipped out of the limelight and clearly peaked at a young age. What's interesting about this is the King of Kong pits these two, Steve Wiebe and Billy Mitchell, against each other, right? The the old the old guard and the underdog, the new the new guy. And at the end, spoiler alert, um, it turns out like Billy Mitchell is able to kind of hang on to his high scores, but in a in a questionable way. And it turns out maybe it wasn't that legitimate. But the documentary states that we'll never really know. Um, it's kind of up in the air, and it turns out. Uh, they weren't legitimate. And we found out this week that he's out uh, as as far as being the record holder goes. He's been banned from competition. And this guy, Steve Wiebe, who in this old documentary was the up-and-comer but didn't quite make make the bar, is, is the winner. He holds the high score for Donkey Kong, and it's kind of wild. Yeah, this is some serious stuff. Like the, the rules, I was looking up how they, they track this. Um, you have to play on the original hardware. Like you can't, you know, build a new machine or use an an emulator or anything like that. And that's what it came out. He cheated by using some sort of emulator attached to um, like an arcade machine because you have to send in actual VHS, actual videos. At least back then, uh, that's how they, they verified scores. Um, and so, like you said, this is Guinness Book World Records, the Twin Galaxies Corporation, who keeps track of all this. Um, and so, yeah, that's how he was out. It is... Uh, it was really technical, but basically they, they proved that what he he did what wouldn't have been possible by the rules of the game. Right. They slowed down the frames in the game, and, and the way that the original motherboard for Donkey Kong and the old arcade machine 
uh, generates levels versus like how a computer does it via emulation nowadays are different. And that's how they were able to tell he was cheating. And it's something they couldn't do back when the doc came out, but they can now. It's it's weird because the documentary really does draw Billy Mitchell as the bad guy, essentially. He is the antagonist in this real life story. And Steve Wiebe is the good guy. And when I watched it, I thought, well, maybe... Maybe that's a little bit of a slant from the documentarians, right? That's something that happens in documentaries sometimes, that the filmmaker's uh, editorial opinion kind of gets injected into the presentation, and you believe you believe things in a certain way that the filmmaker wants you to see them in, right? Um, that was kind of, to me, an issue with something like Making a Murderer, because they really present um, Stephen, what's his name? <laughs> from making a murder yeah and i know who you're talking about right I, I don't remember uh, his name. oh god i really wish i knew that man egg on my face they present him as, as pretty much innocent and i thought when i watched that well maybe that's you know maybe that's biased right maybe that's not really the way it is i'm not really looking at the facts i'm looking at somebody presenting me the facts um and king of kong does that it's crazy to see that like maybe it wasn't so much that way maybe that presented it exactly the way it is in real life um, and it's enlightening in, in, in regards to documentaries as a whole, I think. Yeah. The, the last thing I'll add is that he, apparently he held the records for his, a couple of other games and those have also been like struck from the record. Like he's just, any record he holds has now been questioned and he's been banned and removed from all whatever record holders. Right, and it's crazy because that includes his old-school score on Pac-Man because he was one of the first, if not the first, to complete Pac-Man and reach like the end of the game, which is where you get over 256 bits or something and it bugs out. I- I'm not sure exactly, but he was one of the first to do it way back in the 80s, and even that has been stripped from the record books. And the logic is, well, if he could cheat now, who's to say he didn't cheat then? It's, it's nuts, um, and I know it's not ex- necessarily movie news, but it's related to a documentary, which is something we don't talk about a whole lot on the show. We might be talking about next week, so stay tuned to find out what we'll be watching then. For now, we should move on to our first movie of the evening. Andy has volunteered <laughs> to kind of headline this one, so Andy, please take it away. Uh, so today we're looking at Rampage. I was just thinking the only thing that's missing right now is a giant crocodile. So this is the latest uh, monster action movie by uh, director Brad Payton, who's uh, he's also done some disaster movies, uh, San Andreas recently, which he did with uh, Dwayne Johnson. Uh, he's going to be doing Just Cause and San Andreas too. So big kind of dumb action flicks are kind of his thing. Anyways, uh, the plot centers around uh, Dwayne Johnson, who plays a primatologist slash zoologist who uh, looks after this ape habitat. Um, and he has a big, big albino, uh, gorilla friend named George. And, you know, they, they have a very close relationship. They sign to each other. I don't know how close that is to, you know, how, how, how much apes actually can and can't sign. <laughs> um, and anyway, one day George is exposed to some sort of chemical agent and starts growing, starts getting aggressive, gets bigger and bigger. He kills a grizzly bear. Um, eventually, he grows so big that he escapes, escapes, escapes the uh, the compound and starts rampaging uh, through the streets. This, of course, gets the attention of law enforcement, of clandestine government agents, of corporations. 
um, who are trying to stop this. Uh, elsewhere in the world, a couple of other animals have also been infected by this uh, chemical agent. And so we also have a giant wolf and a giant alligator thing um, who are just kind of wreaking havoc. Eventually, they all head to uh, Chicago, start destroying the city, and Dwayne Johnson and company head there to stop the destruction, but also Dwayne Johnson is trying to make sure that his friend George doesn't get uh, killed by the military and everything else uh, in the meantime. Uh, so that's the setup. Uh, Zach, what'd you think? Man, I couldn't stand this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I struggled like watching it. And I, I think, I think it's because I, I, I don't want to say I watched this week's movies out of order, but we watched them in a different way. You watched Florida project after rampage. Yes. I watched Florida project before rampage. And Florida Project is our next next movie, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it set a bar. All right, let's leave it at that until we get to our conversation. Um, Rampage doesn't even swing for that fence, man. It is a <laughs> low, mindless, low hanging fruit action film. That is what this is. If you, I mean, it's not even like Pacific Rim Uprising cerebral, and that was, I thought, a mindless action film. Like, no, it doesn't even go for that. This movie doesn't do backstory. It doesn't do engaging antagonistic villains. It doesn't really do four-dimensional protagonists in Dwayne Johnson. It is, look at the CGI. Oh, man, look at the CGI. There, there, <laughs> there, there's a giant thing, and it's going to hit another giant thing. Oh, it did it, and now it's going to take down a building, and it did that too. And there's value in that, if that's what you're into, <laughs> Um, but man, I rolled into this movie in totally the wrong mindset. I, I, uh, I didn't even think it was going to be good when I came in and I walked out feeling the same way and that was foolish and I shouldn't have done that. Um, because the, the, the people that were in the theater with me really enjoyed it and there were a lot. <laughs> yeah. What did you think of Rampage? Well, as, as we've said many times on this show that enjoying cinema is a lot about the expectations you do or don't bring, uh, to mm. a movie. Um, I mean, the trailer shows giant CGI monsters smashing things up, so I fully expected to see exactly that, and that's that's what we get. Um, I enjoyed it more than I thought it was. I actually thought it was a little bit better than uh, Pacific Rim. Uh, I thought the characters were a little bit uh, better written, um, had a little bit better dialogue. It's a, it's funny. I chuckled. The the Rock has has good jokes. Um, it is very very cliche in paint by numbers. Uh, you know, yeah. you have your stereotypical, like, evil corporation, evil, or, you know, questionable government agencies, no-name military people, smash, grab, smash, grab, you know, bang, bang, throughout the whole movie. It, I mean, it's really predictable. You know where it's going to go. Um, so, for what it was, you know, I, I enjoyed it for that. It's definitely too long. It's a full two hours, which is too long, is too for, long. Yes. For, for smashing stuff up mid hour 40 was like is like tops uh for that because it just it's, goes on too long let's start with the writing all right let's start there this movie is written by five people which when you have five <laughs> writers you've got a problem like you shouldn't need that many people specifically four people in the story by ryan ingle but to be clear this movie is based on a video game um which is oddly featured in universe so 
I guess it's based on the game as far as the world of the movie is concerned, which is weird. Um, they feature the arcade machine in the game. Yeah. And a, a, a kind of tongue-in-cheek joke from Jeffrey Dean Morgan's character. Um, the characters, for what it's worth, are very one-dimensional. And again, like it, it is an action film, man. It is it, What you see is what you get, like you said from the trailer. The Rock is a former military-turned-primatologist Simple man who has seemingly no home life other than hitting the gym, I guess. <laughs> they never yeah. feature that. Uh, he's got a buddy who works the zoo with him who is a generic nerd vegan character. Uh, he runs into... Who we, don't, na- who we don't see after like 20 minutes. No. Uh, and there's a couple of like <laughs> jokes at the expense of vegans in there, so I guess that's fair. Uh, there's a female scientist he runs around with who is implied to have a relationship with him at the end of the film uh there's a one of the more interesting characters in the movie there's a uh kind of antagonist protagonist uh character played by jeffrey dean morgan uh, named harvey russell who's an odd like western stereotype yeah. uh, who i kind i kind of like to be fair like he yeah. tried <laughs> at least he was trying to do something but i felt like he was trying to go for like this weird kind of performance and brad payton was just like yeah that's great first take done like didn't like didn't bother like directing him in, in a way so he's got kind of an odd accent and okay. like i didn't yeah. i felt weird about him the, the the two the brother and sister characters who are the antagonists um they're kind of one note and, and played simply um, and very hokey and, and uh, oddly dumb. Like they make very foolish decisions in the movie as they hang out in their like Chicago penthouse suite watching the world fall apart from their televisions and, and like rub, rubbing their hands together like Mr. Burns speculating <laughs> how they're going to make millions. Uh, they're weird um, and, and I didn't really like them. And that kind of just runs down the list of, of characters really. And, and then and of course the monsters who, to be fair, were my favorite in this movie. The CGI is actually a really killer for what it's worth. Like yeah. the monsters were, were, were really rad. Um, let's talk about Jeffrey Dean Morgan's character for a right, little bit. Yeah, so, let's. So he plays like some sort of cowboy CIA guy, and he like kinda, yeah, yeah. It, it, well, it's so weird because he like he he has this swagger. He has this like brightly colored pistol, this like uh, white Colt forty five yeah. looking thing. Which yeah. which the first time you see him, it means he was actually driving around with it out, and I was like, that's that's kind of weird. Um, he has a giant <laughs> belt buckle. And he uh-huh. speaks in this like southern drawl and kind of cocks his head and speaks real slow, like this. You know, it's just um, yeah. it's an odd choice, but I found it oddly charming. Um, yeah, no, I, I think <laughs> I, he was I my really, favorite character in yeah. the movie, honestly. So, for what it's worth, like it kind of works. Um, I thought it was weird that yeah, like da- Davis Okoye, who is is Dwayne Johnson, like has no home life outside of work really that that's his life and i guess he's a, a former uh mil- marine or something he's so like, that's animals fine, but get, like animals get me right yeah animals says. get me that's that's it and again <laughs> hitting the gym which they don't show but you just assume because he's the rock so that's kind of odd uh, to talk about the animals for a second again the cgi was really pretty good for what it's worth um the end of the movie kind of devolves into what is the video game which is the animals messing up a city that's featured in the trailer so I don't feel bad saying that and that all comes off pretty good like the action for what it's worth is is pretty all right i felt like the humor was lowbrow 
um, leading up to penultimately uh, a couple of gags at the end that were just so like predictable and stupid. And and what sucked for me is these these jokes actually play. They happen, and, and I rolled my eyes, and and everybody in my theater clapped. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> like, Same here. Yeah, it was great. It's just part. I was like, oh god, like this is we we sit here on this show every week and try to figure out the death of cinema. <laughs> this is it. We found it. Rampage, <laughs> like, right and here. people paying to go see a movie um like this one and again number like one at for, the box for, office yeah oh my god yeah you you were quick to send that to me for like an action movie not only did it make money it works um but coming off of these movies we've been watching we just got out of oscar season like man my movies they gotta enrapture me like, they gotta bring <laughs> me in man they gotta they gotta wrap a warm blanket around me and hold me tight and never let me go and this one, like, I just did not get that out of. But there, there's there's other things to talk about. What did you think of kind of the pace of the movie? You said it was too long. Um, yeah, so it kind of takes itself very seriously. Like, there's a lot of really dramatic moments. And, you know, there's a part where uh, The Rock is, like, doing a flashback. He's like, you know, when I found George, his, they had butchered his mother. And I found him in, <laughs> under their car. And, and well, what did you do to the poachers? And he's got this cheesy line. He's like, they shot at me. And missed i didn't yeah. <laughs> it's just like oh, it's that, so that kind of laughable dialogue oh, um yeah. it's really I, I didn't mind the first half it's just the the smashing uh you know destroying stuff just kind of goes on forever and we've talked about this with pacific rim that you know again 17 years after 9 11 we have rebuilt one and a half buildings and they're always like destroying <laughs> cities, just like the amount of destruction and like, you know, the logistics in me. I'm like, it would take so long to rebuild that. Well, it's it's weird. Yeah, because it takes place. The kind of the final countdown that the final showdown takes place in Chicago and they make it very clear. Like the city is not evacuated. It's not. They're they kind of say it. They're like, well, they try to say that. Yes, the 10 block radius has been evacuated. But like, oh, do not, they? I missed that line. OK, but come on. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they've got a generic, like, military guy sitting in a base somewhere. Like, he's, he might as well be chewing a cigar, like, looking at screens, like, drop the bomb, and nothing's working. What are we going to do? And, like, we're going to have to we're gonna have to hit him with the Moab, the mother of all bombs. Like, oh, God, okay. And, and just, like, I, it works, yeah. But I, I did definitely think about 9-11, oddly, when I was watching this movie, because at one point, a whole skyscraper goes down, the whole thing. And it's like, that is 9-11-esque damage. That's what that is. Um, what's interesting about that is that... It plays it awfully serious, yeah. Sorry. Uh, what's interesting about that is right after 9-11, like, films were very, very careful about the kind of destruction they showed, specifically anything with bombs or planes or big buildings kind of falling over. Like, they just stayed away from it. They stayed away from that topic. And eventually people, I guess, got over it, and now it's it's normal to see like you know whole buildings be uh, destroyed it's really interesting how th- that happens i guess i do want to talk about they they do this i really quick i want to address that this is based on a video game and, and what that means um there's a great there's a great tweet that went out from dwayne johnson just over the week i probably should have stuck this in movie news but it was about dwayne johnson's excited that people are going to see it and it's got like a like a 50 something on Rotten Tomatoes. At least he did when he tweeted this. And he was like, hey, check it out. 
Rampage has the greatest Rotten Tomatoes score of any video game movie, and that rocks. And I should know, because I was in Doom, and that was terrible. And the official Doom Twitter account gets on, and they tweet back, and I'm like, Dwayne. <laughs> Dwayne, please. Um, it is based on a, Yeah, it is based on a video game. And the video game is very simple. It's it's a game, if you haven't played it or seen it, it's a game where you pick one of three different kind of monsters, a giant gorilla, a giant wolf, or a giant alligator, and you bust up a city for a high score. That's the game. The game, the arcade cabinet, is featured in the movie in the penthouse with the evil villains. It's like in a two-shot. It cuts over, and it's like, there it is, behind their shoulder, turned on and ready to roll. And it's funny, because in that conversation, they talk about this kind of, this genetic serum or vapor or whatever it is they produce that can, that can do this to these animals and make them grow and freak out. And they call it Project Rampage. So I guess they called it that based on the game that they own and play. Like, it was very... It's very, very tongue in cheek. Yeah, and <laughs> and Jeffrey Dean Morgan's character jokes when when he shows uh, Dwayne Johnson's character, uh, the wolf, the giant wolf. He says people on the internet have already seen it. They're calling him Ralph, and I'm like, I guess that's from the game because in the game Rampage, the wolf is called Ralph. So yeah, like it's all very directly based on the game in the world of the movie, which is strange. Something. Yeah. I should say, and I don't think this is a spoiler, uh, somebody asked me at work, does Dwayne Johnson take some of this serum and hulk <laughs> out and become like a 30-story tall rock and duke it out with the monsters? You know, I don't want to say whether or not that happens on this show because we're not a spoiler show, so I would encourage you to go see Rampage and find out. Um, I've seen that request in, on several film boards and discussions. <laughs> I I almost wonder how much thought they put into it, you know, and whether or not that was worth the price of admission. Because like I said, the CGI is pretty good in this movie. Um, and if you want to find out if that happens, go see the movie, I guess. Uh, but I did feel like The Rock was utilized pretty efficiently despite being in a movie where cgi characters tower over him and in a lot of scenes make him kind of look like a very small man which was a weird perspective to have with the rock who's normally perceived to be a big dude and i guess that's how he connects with george that's kind of their, their connection right yeah he's a big guy in the room uh one of the things that that reminds me of is you know apparently uh Dwayne's physique has kind of changed Hollywood and how the new action star has to look like he's kind of the bar now that everyone's trying to like beef up to that size, mm -hmm. um, which I think is actually promoted things like steroids and HGH. But nevertheless, <laughs> you know, if you look like if you look sure. at um, uh, Chris Helmsworth uh, from Thor, you look at him in the first horror to the most recent Thor. I mean, he's considerably bigger, like phys yeah. physically. It's just. Uh, the Rock has raised the bar and everyone else is trying to catch up physically. Sure. I thought it was funny. Uh, you can go back uh, You can go back and look at a before and after of uh, Hugh Jackman in like the most recent X-Men film, not Logan, but I want to say like Days of Future Past he was in versus like X-Men, which came out in 2000. And like you think of Logan as like this pretty ripped dude with a six pack back when like X-Men came out. Like he was, he was a pretty skinny guy. Yeah. He, was, he, like, was, he wasn't looking. too big of a dude. Yeah. It's, it's funny how we've kind of shifted that way. 
Yeah, I, um, re- I remember he said, uh, he, Jackman, said in, I think it was the Wolverine movie, the second kind of in, uh, spinoff one, that mm-hmm. that's when he achieved the physique that he thought was appropriate for Wolverine. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, any other thoughts on this before we get to final recommendations? Uh, yeah, just last thing I want to touch on is uh, Naomi Harris is in this. Uh, she plays uh, Dr. Kate Caldwell, who's kind of the sidekick of, of Dwayne Johnson's character. She follows him around. She's the scientist geneticist. The last thing she she was in that I saw her in was Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Oscar nominated for that role. And then, and then this. I just thought that was an interesting uh, juxtaposition. Well, yeah, it was weird because I was watching this and I kept thinking, what have I seen her in? What do I know her from? I know I know her from somewhere. I'm not sure where. And looking at her IMDb page, Moonlight was a big one. She was also in Skyfall is kind of the main, you know, the the, the main, what was I going to say? I was going to say like sidearm or something for James Bond. The the Bond woman, all right, in Skyfall. I, I don't mean to sell Arm her performance candy. short. <laughs> sure. And also she was in 28 Days Later, which was great. Danny Boyle. I love that movie. She's been in some stuff. And in this, like, she was all right, I guess. But at certain points, she was reduced to what Roger Ebert would call a screaming dish rag. She was just kind of, <laughs> oh, she was, yeah, she was the Mary Sue who's, who's, who's screaming and crying about everything crazy that's happening. And that was a bummer. She does, she does have some value in that she's the geneticist who kind of worked on the, um, what is it you called it? A vapor, a serum, yeah. the stuff yeah, that- Yeah, Rampage Serum, yeah, chemical the rampage, agent. The chemical agent, sure. She she worked on that, um, but her backstory is, is kind of ham-fisted and really doesn't go anywhere. And uh, yeah, she ends up just kind of shouting her way through scenes at the end, which is a bummer. Uh, but I guess she, she, she filled the role efficiently, I suppose. It is weird to see her in this though, but would Andy, uh, I, I feel like I'm just talking in circles here. Would you recommend Rampage? I mean, if you're looking for, you know, some kind of mindless action to take the kids to see, or take your, you know, your casual film, film going friends to see, yeah, I'd recommend it for that. Like, like I said, you got to know what you're getting into. It's it's just a dumb, fun popcorn flick. I <laughs> it is a dumb, fun popcorn flick. Yeah, there, I don't know if there's any better way to say it. When I first saw it, I walked out and was like, "What a waste of time! Oh my <laughs> god, this movie is too long. It is ham-fisted. Um, the writing is pretty bad. The performances are okay at best, but it's on Netflix. If you have nothing better to watch and you're looking for like a mindless action flick, go ahead and watch Rampage. Otherwise, don't pay money at the box office to go see this. If you got kids, I'll bet they'd like it. Um, there's a surprising amount of gore for being a PG-13 film, uh, so I thought that was weird. And at some point, I'd like to have a Death of Cinema conversation about PG-13 and gore versus sex in films because, man, there, there was some stuff in this yeah. movie. I was like, good Lord, Like, how is this PG-13? This is, this is pretty, pretty <laughs> there were, edgy. There were lots of kids in my uh, screening as well. Mine as well, yeah. Um, and people seem, yeah, they they laughed at the cheesy jokes I rolled my eyes at, and they uh, they they didn't, you know, they clapped at the end, and I I didn't. And the, all the stuff I wanted to laugh at was things like if I had gone and seen it with friends, I think would have been funnier. Like when The Rock is telling that story about well, when I found George, he was he was uh, being poached, and he's talking about these poachers. He he delivers it so straight. He says <laughs> the poachers were cutting off the mom's the gorilla mom's hands to use them for ashtrays. <laughs> 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 the 
that's probably a real thing. That's probably a real thing that happens. But like, he just says it so straight. And I thought it was like, really? Gorilla hands for ashtrays? Who came up with that? Like, just wild. So it can be fun in the right context with the right crowd. I think it's enjoyable. But personally, it wasn't for me. That's Rampage. Uh, Any other thoughts before we move on to our next segment? I'm ready to go. All right. Well, our next segment is one we haven't done in a while, but I'm excited to have a return to the show. This is The Trailer Park. And the first movie we're going to be talking about is, let me pull up my notes, yes, Traffic. Just hold on, all right? Traffic. (laughs) Traffic with a K. Yes. I wanted to do a trailer park segment ever since I saw the trailer for this movie in front of A Quiet Place. A Quiet Place, we talked about last week, didn't have a tremendous budget. Um, They were kind of taking a chance on John Krasinski doing horror. It totally paid off. But this trailer ran in front of it. And I was stunned because this looks like such a cheap direct-to-DVD uh, knockoff film and I couldn't believe I was watching like a full-fledged cinematic trailer for it what did you think about it uh, well why don't you tell us what it's I, about I guess, I guess we should tell people what it's about yeah I realize that now yes uh, Traffic is a film starring Omar Epps who uh, plays a, a boyfriend taking his girlfriend out for a, a, a nice relaxing vacation where I believe he wants to propose to her and uh, on their way out to their friend's uh, house in the hills and what I presume is Hollywood they stop at a gas station to gas up and run into what are probably white supremacists, as far as I can tell, who uh, are involved in a uh, human trafficking ring, probably sex trafficking, to be fair. And after a, a scuffle at the gas station and a scuffle on the road, they make it out to the house where the uh, gang members, I guess, uh, find them and, and, and kind of pursue them for a night of uh, violence and, and horror and potential kidnapping for trafficking yeah that seems to be the movie sorry there's an issue of a phone that they basically swaps from one party to another that's why they kind of go out right one of one of the girls in in the traffic ring who has to go to the bathroom drops a phone a cell phone in the bag of omar epps's girlfriend and and that's that's it um and then that's how they find him they track the phone down it's simple but what's interesting about this is is it's cut so like cinematic they're trying to make it look like a movie like uh, Vacancy or, or or The Strangers. And like, I, I counted. I went back and watched uh, to, to pull a clip that you just heard uh, for Traffic uh, trailer. They, they have a total of four filming locations featured in this two and a half minute trailer, just under two and a half minutes. They got the apartment where they start, to, where, they, where they leave on the road trip, the gas station, the road from the gas station to the house where they have some kind of ham-fisted car chase. I keep saying ham-fisted. Uh, they have some kind of car chase. And the house, which I presume is like the director's house or like <laughs> a house they rented for the weekend so they could film at it. It just looks so low budget. And again, like not to say that, oh, it has to have big stars to be a good movie, but like the headliner is Omar Epps and a bunch of people you've never heard of. So... It's weird to see this trailer in front of like a movie I paid to go see because it just looks so cheap. So Paula Patton is in this, I think. Correct. I I, I don't know. Um, Paula I, Patton, I, sure. Yeah, she she plays uh, his girlfriend, I think. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So 
I really like her as a, as an as an actor. Uh, she was in uh, where I first really remember her was from Mission Impossible: uh, Ghost Protocol. She's, oh wow! Yeah, great. I mean, that's Tom Cruise. Like, she's top notch actress. So I don't know what's happened with her career for her to have fallen so low to have Be to work traffic. with Omar Epps and and in this straight to DVD. You know, should come out on Netflix maybe uh, right. level of film. Uh, I don't. It looks like he, it looks like you see the whole film in the trailer, and it yeah. looks just very. You know, it's a home invasion movie that we've seen a million times before. Right, which is why yeah, I thought of vacancy in the strangers. It's weird. The trailer does this funny thing to like fit the trailer mold that they put it in for like action thriller kind of horror, where at the end of the trailer they feature like an action shot of the movie, but the action shot is from the car chase that led into them having the big <laughs> showdown at the end. So it's a, it's a cut from earlier in the film. So it's like, well, obviously they're fine. Like, you just showed me later in the movie. Like, what do you... How does that work? Like, yeah, it almost offers too much context, and it just looks real cheap. Like, the lighting looks cheap. The cinematography is simple. Um, it's just really odd to look at. And that's really all I had to say about traffic. Um, we probably won't cover it on this show. Um, (laughs) I hope not unless it's a real slow week at the movies. So that's all I got. Uh, Andy, you want to take the next movie? Uh, Go ahead. Uh, so the next thing, uh, trailer we're talking about is called Adrift. We're thousands of miles from land. We're not in any flight paths. That's like a 1500 square mile search area. Um, and this is a Lost at Sea film starring Shailene Woodley and Sam Claflin. Um, they play the, this young couple, madly in love, who uh, decide to sail like a thousand miles up the coast, uh, you know, in a two person sailboat, whatever. Naturally, they get shipwrecked, they get hit by a giant storm, giant wave. Uh, they recover. You know, she's got a big head wound. He's like, you know, got broken ribs, broken legs. And so then you get just kind of what happens in all Lost at Sea films. You deal with sunburn, thirst, hunger, despair. And it's, you know, will they or won't they find their way back to wherever they, they have to get to? Um, I'm going to say probably they will. Um, so on the one hand, and the film looks really kind of genuine. It Like it looks pretty well shot um there's some pretty convincing scenes of shailene woodley being very sunburned um it's it's not real exciting to me personally i I like shailene woodley and i'm waiting for her to be in a really good movie she's she's kind of doing the young jennifer lawrence thing where she's been she's in a lot of stuff a lot of okay stuff but she hasn't been hasn't gotten like a big breakout role yet one thing's for sure, uh, when I look at a movie like Adrift, it does look like it's made on a low budget, but I can respect any movie made in the water because it's not easy to film anything on a boat. It's not easy to film things where it's supposed to look like it's out at sea. Like It's not. It, it's, it's deceptively easy, I think, or deceptively difficult. Um, it looks easy, and it's totally not. So yeah, even though they have two actors in a boat and probably a pretty low budget, like it's tough to make a movie like this. It is, and, and it's, it's kind of tough to perform in it as well. It's tough to shoot on a boat. It's hard. Um, so for what it's worth, I'm like, this movie looks okay, I guess. Like, like a lot of trailers, I'm bummed that they pretty much show you the whole thing, and it very much implies they, they're fine by the end. I mean, the last... 15 to 30 seconds of the trailer are her like, well, if we're going to make it back to mainland, I'm going to have to make things happen. And then it's like her catching fish, 
her making a sail, her patching a hole in the boat. Like clearly, it looks like they're going to make it. Like <laughs> yeah, it looks pretty like, much yeah, lines it up. Like fine. look how look yeah look how she adapts to adversity and overcomes. Like yeah, so I think they're going to be fine. It is based on a true story, which is you know for, it's fine, I guess. The only other thing I wanted to talk about with this movie is its presentation in the trailer because they do this funny thing where when they cut to like text to tell you what's happening, you know, when they're 12,000 miles from home, nobody's there to save them, things like that. The text and the font and the colors they use look like they ripped it right out of Dunkirk. And I talked to you about this after I saw it. I came out of a quiet place and was like, dude, this movie, this trailer of this movie, Adrift, they, they look like they ripped the text off of Dunkirk. And like, I thought the same thing. how close yeah. it is. Yeah. So last week when we recorded and we were talking about doing this segment, we, we Googled it just to see. And sure enough, like side by side, you almost wouldn't be able to tell they're different movies. It's stunning. It is the, I'm pretty sure it's the exact same font, the same size, the same, like the same kind of color scheme for the font. I mean, it's, it's crazy how close, like how they ape Dunkirk in the trailer for a Christopher Nolan epic for this low budget film. And I guess... <laughs> When it comes to design, I mean, it's all about using other people's ideas to kind of craft your own, but it's just weird. Like, the, I mean, I saw it, and my brain immediately went to Dunkirk. It was yeah, strange. Yeah, I mean, same thing. And I, we had that, that same thought separately. Um, yeah. it, like I said, it's definitely a ripoff of that, that font and that look. Um, mm. I'm not a real big fan of Lost at Sea films. I feel like they're all kind of the same. Like, you deal with the same problems, hunger, thirst... You know, hallucinations, boredom, maybe some, I don't know, <laughs> philosophizing <laughs> about about life. Uh, yeah, sure. I think probably, um, what's the Tiger at Sea film? I can't remember. Ang Lee's film. Life of Pi. Yeah, Life of Pi. Yeah. That's probably the only one I've, I've enjoyed. But other than um, that, they're kind of all the same to me. Honorable mention for me, and maybe it's only because I enjoyed his performance, uh, Robert Redford in All is Lost I really liked, but that's a movie where like there's almost no dialogue, and it's very quiet, and just follows one guy on a boat, and I thought that was a really cool movie, but other than that, yeah, the whole castaway thing, uh, like like the uh, you know strangers uh, attacking you at, at, at a nice place at night, uh, like in traffic, um, it's kind of just been overdone. Uh, who needs it, you know? But our other C-related trailer, and we have three more of these now, so we should probably get moving because I realize we're spending a lot of time on this. But I have a lot to say. Uh, is Jason Statham's The Meg. A living fossil. Thought to have been extinct for over two million years. Wrong. Jason Statham didn't direct this movie. He stars in it. But this is a film about a giant shark, specifically Meg is short for Megalodon. It's a Megalodon movie. They make a Shark Week joke in the trailer. So it's very aware of what it is. It's got hokey music to go along with it. It very much looks like Jaws, except a bigger shark. That's the angle. Uh, specifically, uh, it's... it's, it's it centers around some kind of underwater facility where a giant 70 foot shark shows up and then they figure out, oh man, we got to do something about this. We're going to have to, we're going to have to blow up Megalodon. Oddly enough, when I was watching the trailer, I, I got, I, I got ideas in my head about Moby Dick, uh, but only because it's, <laughs> it's a man hunting a giant, a giant underwater creature. Um, Jason Statham is the star of this. It also stars Rain Wilson from The Office, which is weird. Cliff Curtis from uh, Sunshine is the last movie I remember him being in, and Ruby Rose as the titular female, I suppose. That's um, that's how you know to avoid it. Anything that Ruby Rose ends up in. Oh like. man, yeah. I, I was just I was chuckling at these names. Uh, Jason Statham's character is named Jonas Taylor. 
Jonas in a C movie, so that's cool. And Ruby Rose is Jack's herd, which is two two X's in Jack's. I'm like, wow, that's going to be quality. And the only thing I really have to say about this is at one point, and I think this is important in light of Rampage, at one point Jason Statham, I'm pretty sure, was the highest paid action star in Hollywood. Now he's in The Meg. And it's intriguing to me to see how far the poor man has fallen. I guess it's not that far from like crank two high voltage, but um, yeah, kind of a bummer. I feel like I haven't seen Jason Statham in a little while, and then here he is in The Meg. So I don't know. What do you think? So the, I thought the trailer was really tongue in cheek. They're base. They're really are poking fun at Jaws, and like the yeah. poster is a ripoff of of the Jaws poster on purpose. Um, it looks like it's it's you know it's an action horror slash comedy. There's probably going to be lots of bad jokes. And I mean, when he first when the first see the shark, he, you know, he delivers an, one of these absurd lines very seriously, like which is done. We could probably make a whole segment on that. Uh, well, you know, they see the shark, and he's like, "It's a megalodon." Like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Right. Th- thanks, Jason. It, <laughs> right. Thank you for that. It is it is oddly tongue-in-cheek, and it's funny because the genres listed on IMDb are action, horror, sci-fi, and thriller. They don't leave comedy in, but it is PG-13. Personally, I, yeah, looking at, like, the goofy uh, highlighter green font they went for on, on the cover and, like, the kind of approach in the trailer... Um, it seems like they're going for the uh, Sharknado audience, at least to me. I'm like, it looks like the Sharknado, but a little like a little bit more serious. Um, it's like yeah, a just, step above. Yeah, and a step below Jaws. And like, I don't know if there's a place for that in 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 cinema right now. Like, I I I don't know why somebody would be inclined to go see a movie like that. This seems like something I would absolutely pass on. But saw the trailer, thought it was goofy. Figure we should talk about it on the trailer park. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, uh, you just saw people witness people clap in Rampage. So, I did. So oh, God, <laughs> I think there's right. definitely a place for it. This, this trailer ran in front of Rampage. I'd like to be clear in case anybody thought differently. Uh, the next movie uh, you actually sent me. Um, it's the. Well, well, go ahead. Uh, we'll get to the discussion. What do you think? Uh, so this is called American Animals. How can I tell you if I'm in or I'm out without you telling me the first thing about what I might be in or out of? This would be something dangerous and very exciting. Uh, it's a new film by A24. It's a heist film coming out in the summer. Um, and it looks really quirky. I, I didn't know what to think uh, about it initially. Uh, I want to p- pull up some names here. Yeah. Um, so it star- stars Evan Peters, who uh, is best known for American Horror Story. He's been on like eight seasons of that. Um, and Barry Keown, who was in last week's, uh, killing of a sacred deer. And anyways, they play these young adult high school slash college age, uh, boys who come up with this heist to steal this very valuable book out of a library. Um, and as you can tell, they're young, they're dumb. They have uh, this crime caper planned out. So it looks like a lot of fun. looks like the the movie's going to have a lot of attitude. looks like everything's probably going to go wrong. But the the boys are, are very confident, mostly confident in in their plan, um, and it, it's you know one of the things quote unquote it well it says this isn't based on a true story this happened so right. it is, so it is based on a true story but um, yeah. but it looks like to, it has a lot of style and I, I I've really been in, impressed with uh, Barry Keown uh, the the last two films he's been in Killing of a Sacred Deer and Dunkirk. Um, 
So it, it looks like a lot of fun, a little bit more serious kind of movie than, uh, you know, some of the other summer schlock. I'll I tell you what I liked about this trailer, just first things first. It doesn't fit in a mold. It felt unique. It felt different. And that gets me more excited for a movie than often like the footage I see. Because if you can present them, which I know sounds really stupid, like I'm judging a book by its cover. Hear me out. Like if you can present a movie in a different way, it's interesting just in advertising odds are that's how you present the film right like that's it's usually representative of kind of how the film is put together and this trailer is different it's intriguing and what's presented in it looks really cool there's a lot of like intriguing colors used and things that kind of pop on screen lots of music the performances look engaging the story looks in- interesting uh for, for what it's for, for what it's worth for a bunch of what i assume to be frat boys stealing a book um yeah, I, I saw this and was like, well, this looks pretty cool. And that's that's saying a lot because I, I've, I've definitely grandstanded about how too many movies use the word American in front of their titles. Um, this does look interesting. So, yeah, out of all the movies we're talking about on the trailer park today, we only have one more to go. Um, this one, I think, catches my interest the most. This one I, I probably actually want to go see. Hopefully we'll get to talk about it on the show. Yeah, I definitely w- want to go see it. It reminds me of like an Ocean's Eleven that you know is going to go wrong from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I just can't can't wait to, to see it. Right. I love a good heist film. Heist films are tough. And if you can pull them off, uh, it's the juice is all the sweeter. The last movie we're going to talk about is a trailer I watched uh, minutes before we started recording this podcast. I hadn't. I know it came out, what, yesterday? Today, I, I hadn't think. seen it. Today, okay. And I hadn't seen it. Uh, the movie is... Oh, gosh. I just... Ha- I was going to say American Animals. The movie is Hotel Artemis. The Artemis is a secret hospital for criminals. I thought you were done with all this. I got out, but you know how it goes. And I agreed to talk about this, and you know a little bit more about it than me, so back me up if things go south. Uh, the film centers around a secret hotel, which is really like a hospital in some major city. I can't really tell which one that serves criminals. That's their whole angle is is they just serve criminals and they, they help criminals. But they do this all under a set of rules. The hospital is run by Jodie Foster in some interesting makeup and with an interesting accent and features a, a cast of... Uh, ragtag ruffians i guess criminals who are at the hotel when it becomes uh, what looks to be under siege by another group of criminals and so that seems to be the movie it's one group of criminals defending the secret hotel from another group of criminals um interesting that was my thought here it reminded me of suicide squad in a way because mm-hmm. everybody's kind of a bad guy uh but for what it's worth the cast looks good you got sterling k brown charlie day which I think I said this in Pacific Rim Uprising. Not a villain, man. Stop trying to be a villain. You're not fooling anybody. <laughs> uh, Jodie Foster, Jeff Goldblum, which is really cool. Uh, Dave Batista's in this. I don't know. Yeah, I shoot. It could be something. What do you think? Yeah, it's got some real potential. And uh, it's important to point out it takes place in the future, uh, like 20 years or something. It's, oh, it's, I it's, didn't it's know ahead that. of time. Yeah, so it's I in, hadn't gotten that. It's in the future. I think it's in L.A. And it's one of the things, these things, it's a... Uh, it's like a mo- like a mob doctor essentially. It's someone that criminals or something can go to that that's not a real hospital. Um, also stars uh, Sophia Batella, Jenny Slate, uh, like you said, Char- Charlie Day and Zachary Quinto. So it's kind of like a who's who cast. It's a great cast. Uh, so a lot of potential, and it's kind of like an action comedy. 
The movie's written by Drew Pierce, who also wrote Iron Man 3 and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. So, man, I, I can get behind, like, an original concept. I, I, just like I talked about with American Animals, like, I like movies that try to do something different. Clearly, in how I thought about Rampage, like, I like movies that go for a different direction, that try to do something new. Um, this seems to kind of do that. Yeah, so, uh, considering the cast, considering the writer, considering the direction, um... Even even Jodie Foster's terrible performance won't knock me off seeing this movie. <laughs> I, did, did I, was it just me, or does she seem like I? She felt just a little jilted watching the trailer. I was like, man, you. Uh, she, she just looks. Uh, they made her look really, really old. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I didn't. I mean, I did, I thought she was fine, but yeah, she just looked really old. But she doesn't do a lot of movies. She's very picky about what she does. Yeah. So clearly, she sees something. I mean, along with like Jeff Goldblum. Well, I mean, I know he did Thor three, but. I mean, yeah, you don't you don't see these people in a whole lot of movies, so it's it's interesting. Yeah, you don't see Charlie Day in a whole lot of movies, so like it it seems like they were either handpicked or they specifically sought this movie out. But either way, um, it, yeah, it's got my interest. So we'll see what happens with Hotel Artemis, I guess. Yeah, and uh, well, last thing I want to say is about uh, Dave Bautista. So he he's kind of the anti rock. Like he doesn't want to be a mainstream action star. He could be. He's got the same kind of big, massive physique. Um, but I mean, he was in Blade Runner 2049 and he actively seeks out more complex, complicated roles. Yeah. Just like in Blade Runner 2049. And I can get behind that. I can get behind anybody who's trying to like genuinely grow as an actor. And that seems to be what he's doing. So I, I appreciate it and I, I hope it's good. He does kind of seems like a meathead in this movie, but hopefully that's not all his characters reduced to. The last movie we're going to talk about today is 2017's The Florida Project. Now, I got to be honest, uh, if anybody can't tell this from um, how I say it and how I've done my previous summaries, this one is pre-written. All right, I'm going with the pre-written summary this week. If you've got a problem with it, email me <laughs> at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com and let me know you prefer my ad-libbed uh, summaries. But this one, I... I this this movie is unique, and and, and I, I want to get into why, but first, I think it's important to set the stage, and I didn't think, I, like, I tried to come up with a way to do it myself, and I thought, well, I'll just write some notes, I didn't come up with anything good, so I thought I'd pre-read it, so here it is. Set on a stretch of highway just outside the imagined utopia of Disney World, the Florida Project follows six-year-old Mooney and her rebellious mother Haley over the course of a single summer. The two live week-to-week at The Magic Castle, a budget hotel managed by Bobby, played brilliantly by Willem Dafoe, whose stern exterior hides a deep reservoir of kindness and compassion. Deep reservoir, again. I would not have written that, but it's what I'm going with. It's fine. Uh, Despite her harsh surroundings, the precocious and rebellious Mooney has no trouble making each day a celebration of life. Her endless afternoons overflowing with mischief and grand adventure as she and her ragtag playmates fearlessly explore the utterly unique world into which they have been thrown. Unbeknownst to six-year-old Mooney, however, her delicate fantasy is supported by the toil and sacrifice of her mother Haley, who's forced to explore increasingly dangerous possibilities in order to provide for her daughter. So that's the setup. The movie centered around a six-year-old girl who is in a very, very adult situation, but has this wonderful vulnerability of child innocence. Andy, what did you think of The Florida Project? 
well, I wanted to back up a little bit and uh, remind our listeners. So this actually came out about six months ago, and there was lots of Oscar talk uh, that it would get nominated for writing or Best Picture, and I think it was pretty much completely snubbed and just ignored uh, by everyone, strangely, because it is a really brilliant film. It is very powerful and, and heartbreaking. Um so it did take me a little bit to get into it because the first half is basically uh, Mooney and her two friends kind of just wandering around the hotel and getting into trouble here and there. And it it didn't really go anywhere for the first hour or so, but it, it, it it's just kind of a strange setup because it's it doesn't have acts. It's just kind of one uh, long thing. And mm-hmm. our characters don't really change, but their, their situation does. Um, but to me, this film is really powerful because it's really about, um, kind of economic inequality and, and poverty because you have these people who are, I mean, they're living in these motels so they pay weekly rent, not monthly rent. Um, and you, you see these motel rooms that are just like, you can tell they've been lived in for months at a time. It looks like someone's bedroom with, with all the, the stuff and decorations, how much, uh, is in it um you and and then in the background of it all you have disney world and orlando and all of, you know you have these tourists you have um what, there's this theme of this this helicopter that's nearby that you know i guess people pay for helicopter rides and you can you see it take off and land several times throughout the film you hear it take off and land and so while well, you have these people that are living in poverty and squalor meanwhile other people are going to Disney World and taking helicopter rides. So there's this really stark uh, juxtaposition. Um, and it it was never too heavy-handed for me. Like, it's not rubbing your face in the evils of capitalism. It's just, just plain, this is how some people live. These are some, some harsh, harshness, harsh situations that people live in. A lot of people compared it to Moonlight, which I thought was interesting. They said it was 2017's Moonlight. And, and I feel like people said that because it feels like a movie where you really do step right into like a slice of life that you haven't been in. It's this weird underbelly of a setting, the the, the magic uh, the magic castle hotel that is just so like seedy and shady and like at night people get in fights and people are on drugs and yeah, like people are on welfare and paying week to week and you just have this absolute scumbag cast of characters cast brilliantly believe it or not off instagram most of them sean baker found these people who pretty much that's i mean not exactly how they live but pretty close and it's like yep that's who i want for my movie it's very few professional actors the only one really is willem dafoe and also his son played by off the top of my head charlie baker i think is his name yeah who was also in three billboards outside ebbing missouri and get out both of which we covered on this show um and he was cast only a couple weeks before the movie started. It was shot out in Florida, very candidly, just like Tangerine, which was Sean Baker's previous movie, which was shot um, almost entirely on an iPhone 5, um, with a very yeah. fancy lens, to be fair, but iPhone 5. Um, and it's it's filmed in this really candid way where all of the colors, like this hotel is, is, is kind of a pink-purple color, they pop in like a really saturated contrast to everything that's going around. And the greens and the grass are like really lush and green and colors are really bright and vibrant. And it's really, it's really clever in the offset of like the social setting you're witnessing with these adults, because the movie is centered around these kids. It's almost entirely shot. It almost looks like somebody's on their knees filming the filming these kids. It's always down on their level. Oftentimes it's looking up at adults because the movie 
is centered around like this childlike innocence. These kids who don't understand the world they're in, but are just having fun, like just having having a good time. Then the movie opens with the song "Celebrate" uh, to to kind of draw a comparison there, and it's really cleverly done. Like in, in as far as perspective is concerned, you're never too too caught up in what's happening with the adults, even though you understand it because you're an adult watching this movie. But like it really does draw on like childlike innocence as a factor. Um, yeah, exactly. The, the kids don't really know what's going on. They don't realize, they don't realize they're living in poverty to them. It's just regular life. You know, they do things like, uh, at one point Mooney says, let's go get some free ice cream and free ice cream means let's go hang out at the ice cream stand and beg for money. And it's just, yeah, that's normal for them. They don't think anything, they don't think anything about it. It's not out of the ordinary, um, Mooney accompanies her mom to go, you know, sell perfume to tourists outside of their, uh, hotel rooms. And they're often parts of these, uh, they become part of really desperate situations without realizing that they are very desperate, desperate situations. They just don't like understand. Right. And, and understanding is a big part of it because again, like there's adult, there's a lot of adult situations in this movie and we, the audience get them. But the kids don't. The subjects of the film don't understand. So it's this weird like duality of understanding. It's it's like being in on a joke and the characters aren't. Um, but it's really well done because these kids are just so endearing constantly. Like they don't understand how bad the situation is for them. And it gives you an odd sense, of, at least for me, it gave me an odd sense of like guilt Almost like I just you just feel bad for them, even though they don't know any better because they don't know how bad it is for them. Well, I, th- I think part of what it does is that it illustrates like the cycle of, of poverty that that happens a lot where I mean, the kids are completely unruly. You know, this is a summer, so they're not in school, but they're you're not doing anything productive. They wander around by themselves like they wander from hotel property to hotel property to into abandoned buildings, like completely unsupervised. And they're like, I mean, what, like six, seven like that. They're like under 10. They're real young. So, I mean, you can see how they're not being taken care of and they're not going to have like a real good chance to be different than their parents are. And I think their parents is an important thing to talk about. Most of the adults in this movie, or I should say about half the adults in this movie, are the parental characters, the parents direct of these kids. And they're very, like, most of them do not have it together. I mean, the main character, the main character's mom, uh, Haley, her, the, mo- the mother, um, her hair's like half dyed, like blue, and, and she's on welfare and can't get a job and has a bunch of tattoos and, and speaks in kind of jilted English because she never really learned and she she sells weed. And um, she's kind of just a terrible person. Like, bad things happen to her and her responses are atrocious. Like, she does not respond with any kind of maturity. She She's very childish um, and immature. And it's it's surreal seeing her try to raise Mooney because Mooney's at, at, at kind of attitude towards life is a reflection of hers. But in a way, they have these connections of childness, child childlikeness, I guess, one of, I don't, chi- childish connections, because there are moments when they'll go out and play in the rain. And it's like all their problems are gone, like the problems Mooney isn't aware of and the problems Haley is aware of because they're, they're just having fun and playing together like a mother and daughter, but also like two kids. 
Um, and then you have the other group of adults, which are the hotel owners, specifically Willem Dafoe's character, who, yeah, is, is kind of a, a stern figure, um, but not only looks after somebody like Haley as much as he can anyway, um, but also looks after the kids as they run around and, and play pranks at, at his expense because um, he understands like how bad these kids have it and how to them it's like, well, they're kids, you know, they don't know any better. And like, let's, let's let them have fun while they can before they grow up and discover how awful the world really is. And also other adults in the movie, uh, like tourists uh, from out of town or even other hotel managers who don't feel that way, who are, these people are scummy and, and deserve everything that's happened to them and need to grow up and figure out how, you know, how to get by in the world. And the movie never really addresses what's, which is the right way to think and which is the wrong way. It leaves that up to you, the audience member, but it certainly poses questions um, and asks you to answer them. Yeah, I wanted to, to talk about his character uh, some more. Um, it, it's just a really brilliant role because he he plays a, essentially a father figure to not only the children but also to their parents who are. Ch- I mean, especially because he's old enough, like he's old enough to be Haley's uh, father or mm. or Moody's grandfather. So he ends up kind of being a parental figure to both, and he straddles this fine line between. you know poverty and capitalism because he has to he helps the residents make sure that they make their rent or he cuts cuts them a a break if they're uh, a day late um and but at the same time like he has a job he has to maintain the motel he has to make sure the cops aren't getting called that they're not getting fined so he still has obligations in that sense but it's 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 a very delicate role that i think he just did really well because he does he does get angry he does get upset he does have to um kind of be that stern authoritative figure from time to time but it's always with the best interests of of the residents like he helps Haley get out of a couple of really sticky situations without having to you know go down that road himself and it's kind of cast in this in in the in the shadow of his personal life which you get a little bit of a look into from his son's character who reminds him that hey you know your 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 divorced spouse your wife it was her birthday the other, it was her birthday the other day and i told her happy birthday and he says no no, no don't tell her i said that i don't want her to know that and he's got this strained relationship with his son clearly is on the outs with his ex-wife um he's also not the owner of this hotel he has to answer to somebody else so his boss comes by and he tries to play it straight and like he's working on this crappy computer in this cramped office. Like his life's not that great either. And he's got problems too. And a lot of people don't see him in that light and don't respect him in the way that he kind of deserves, especially considering the way he looks out for uh, kid, the kids and, and the residents. And it's, it's, it's really strained and you can really see kind of that pain and conflict in his character. Again, played brilliantly by Willem Dafoe. Um, I also wanted to talk about, the pace in this movie because you talked about it at the beginning how it, it it is slow at the beginning it's true uh the the first act of this film is rough i i, I check my watch a couple times i'll be honest because <laughs> same you i mean yeah and it wasn't in an insulting way i don't think it's because you're watching just kids run around be kids you know say goofy things and make fart jokes and play stupid pranks and and panhandle for money for ice cream and it's just kind of like okay when's this gonna go somewhere you know when is something gonna happen but 
it once it starts to pick up like <laughs> kind of like killing of a sacred deer in a way like once the plot kind of gets underway and you realize where things are going like it really does grab you and 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 doesn't let go and by the end of the movie at what an hour 51 i think just under two hours i i i it almost felt too fast like it it it, yeah. it picks up in a way that yeah when you get to the end the third act you just rocket through it um and that was really fair i guess for what this movie is yeah and also <clears throat> to me there's a lot of great joy in it with the kids and their innocence and they just don't know better and there's also i mean there's some real heartbreaking moments um especially towards the end and i like that it didn't go i thought we were going to end up with uh, dead people at some point like in these seedy, seedy motels so i'm glad oh, we yeah. didn't we didn't go in that that direction um but it it w- the direction goes is still equally terrible and heartbreaking i i do think it's important to kind of underline that yeah like the, the the situations the adults are in like i said you see it through through the lens of a child but it makes sense to us as adults there's a great scene where um hey Mooney's mom Haley has a has a guy over at the apartment and and you don't really know that's what's happening and how you find out is Mooney's in in the bath listening to rap music of all things and then you hear a door like without cutting away you, you hear a door open and she looks up kind of frightened and you hear a guy's voice like hey there's a kid in here and Haley's like hey no come on like you can't you can't be in there I said bathroom's off limits Again, no cutaway. You you don't see anything. It's all audio, but it's enough for us to know what's happening. Whereas Mooney, like as a six year old, she doesn't know. She doesn't know what's going on there, what that means, what her mom might be up to. She has no idea. Um, and it's really like, I don't. Yeah, vulnerable in a way. There, there's that innocence to it that's really well crafted in this movie. Um, and I, I really respected Mr. Baker for putting it together. Yeah, it it was excellent. Um, I think I'm ready to move on to <laughs> recommendations. I yeah, I, I think I'm I'm probably talking in circles at this point. So, uh, Andy, what did you think of the Florida Project? Um, I mean, I thought it was excellent. It's some heavy stuff. At the same time, there's lots of of joy, the joy and innocence of of childhood. It's a little long, so just prepare yourself for it to be a little slow at the beginning. But I I would highly recommend it. Uh, I would recommend it as well. Uh, the Florida Project is available on Amazon Prime for streaming. That's where we watched it. It is worth every second of your time. It will feel long. It does. It feels like a long movie. Um, but it's totally worth it. It is It is heavy. Give it some room to breathe. Like, take, take some time. Probably, I watched it alone. I think that's how I'd recommend watching it too and kind of sit on it for a little while and see how you feel. Um, it reminded me of how I felt after, after I watched Requiem for a Dream for the first time. It's, it's, it's a very human film. Um, and it, it, it tugs at the heartstrings in a way movies don't often do. So uh, take it easy. <laughs> like it's a, it's a big pill to swallow, but it is totally worth the price of admission if you can swing it. And that's... The Florida Project. So, yeah. For next week, uh, because that wraps our show, we're going to be talking about two movies. One that Andy is very excited to see. <laughs> Super Troopers 2. That's uh, not something we normally cover on this show, but man, April is a slow week at the movies. Or well, month Ra- at the movies. Rampage was supposed to come out next week, but then it moved back because of uh, Infinity War. 
Ah, I didn't know that. Yeah, and Infinity War is the week after, right? Yep. And that will be um, a big deal on this show. <laughs> I'm... Real quick, the other movie we're going to be watching besides Super Troopers 2 is uh, Andre the Giant. It's a uh, documentary on HBO. It'll be our first documentary we've covered on this show, and I think our first HBO film, yep. um, which people at can might argue isn't a film, but um, I'm excited about it. I, I I love a good documentary. It's been a while since I've seen one. Um, I'm not a big wrestling fan, but I watched the trailer for Andre the Giant. And it looks real good, so I'm kind of excited. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, Andre the Giant. It just looks like a really kind of in- intimate portrayal of someone that I think most people know or have heard about. But don't really understand. Yeah. What I was going to say about not next week's show with the week after, man, I'm, I'm trying to steal myself for Infinity War. I really am. <laughs> it is the 19th Marvel film. Like, my God. 19 of these things. And this is just what, like phase one or three or something? Like they're gonna they're gonna keep making them. Like they're they're coming down the line. And I'm trying to get excited because there's so many cool people in it, and Thanos is finally in it. But like, uh, another just, Marvel movie. You're, you're burned out. <laughs> I know, and it, it'll be perfect juxtaposition because I know you're all psyched for it. Yeah. So that'll be good. <laughs> and I'm like I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to figure out some way to get excited about it before uh, before I go see it because I'm afraid if I go see it like this, I'll feel like I, I feel like it like I did about Rampage, but. <laughs> Hopefully not. This is, It's supposed to be like the greatest movie ever. Super Troopers 2 looks like a movie. So that'll be <laughs> something to look forward to next week. Uh, if you want to find out more about us, about this show, about what we do, check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com, put together by the wonderful Dr. Andrew Draper. And also email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. If you want to get involved with the show, tell us movies to watch. Tell us what you thought about movies we watched. Tell us you think our opinions are terrible. Send us some movie <laughs> news. Whatever you want, man. We'll talk about Death of Cinema segments. We'll make it happen. Because this show would not be what it is without each and every one of you, and we appreciate you listening. If you can swing it while I ask for another thing from the people who make this show what it is, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or Spreaker or Google Play. Wherever it is you listen to this show, throw us a like. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram, because we have one of those. How crazy is that? And um, thanks for listening, I I guess. Uh, For Off Script, the home of bold cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.